Raven. I don't remember when the first time he hit me was because by the time that came along, the verbal and emotional abuse had been going on for so very long. Mm -hmm. And it started with things like, you made me so angry if you had just done X, if you had only said this, if you had only worn something different. It was always put on me. Welcome to the Empath and the Narcissist podcast, where you regain your sparkle back after narcissistic abuse. I am your host, Raven Scott, your go-to narcissist abuse recovery coach. Today is episode 92, Our Narcissist Violent Domestic Abuse Awareness Month with Don Renee. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for professional therapy. If you are enjoying this podcast, subscribe and leave a rate and review. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I numbed myself to stop the pain and I reached out to friends for help, but it wasn't until I gained courage to leave and seek therapy that my dark abyss of hopelessness finally started to let in the light I was so longing for. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed, today's sponsor, BetterHelp, is here to help you. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. It allows you to talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. With a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network, it will give you access to help that you need that may not be available in your area. Finding a therapist is easy. You just fill out the questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then you get matched with the therapist in under 48 hours. Everything you share is completely confidential. In therapy, I learn that I wasn't the selfish, lesser person my ex convinced me I was. In my therapy, I was able to get affirmation that I was truly being emotionally and sexually abused. That alone allowed me to release my trauma and grow into the strong coach and mentor that I am today. But I didn't just gain that alone in therapy. I gained my sense of self-autonomy back, my power back, and my confidence back. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash empath. That's betterhelp.com forward slash E-M-P-A-T-H in the link in the show notes. So here's the thing. I don't view narcissists as the villain. I don't view them as evil. I used to. But I don't anymore. I have opened up my eyes to see that it is a mental illness. And I see that I cannot change it either. So I can't control the other person's mental illness. All I can do is guard and shield myself from the toxicity of the byproduct of this mental illness. So I wish all of the narcissists in my life currently and not in my life anymore, all the best of wishes, all the best of intentions to find their healing on their healing journey. But I cannot be party to being codependent and enabling them, not helping them grow because I'm not calling them out or drawing boundaries. So it's a 
painful experience of saying, yeah, hey, publicly, you know, I've called my parents on the spectrum of narcissism and they react very poorly and they don't like it because they're thinking that I'm just calling them out as a villain. All I'm doing is just saying that from all the actions that I've experienced in my adult life in our relationship have been really unhealthy. They've either been very codependent and they only loved me because I went to church and fell inside the box of how they saw I should live. And then when I didn't, and I have Buddhist statues in my house and or married the guy that they don't want me to or make choices or stop going to church and all these things that they just don't align with them and don't make sense, then there's some hidden truth that they don't want to share with me because maybe it is racist, maybe it is bigotous, religious, right? But they don't want to admit that because they want to be good people and loving and supportive parents. So you have this cloud of there's not truth being brought up and then you have me just wanting their love and them running away and not spending a lot of time with me because they feel uncomfortable and sitting in this truth they're hiding from me because they don't want me to never talk to them again, maybe. I don't know. I, you know, there's so much complexity to this scenario. And so all I do is wish that we can have healing. And I'm relating to you, empaths, and knowing that, yes, there's a whole generation of us millennials that have boomer parents who are highly toxic because of their upbringing and their wounds and their trauma. And I get it. But there's like this whole, not everybody, but there's a big majority of the generation that are narcissists. And I don't think that that's bad. I think it's taboo to call it out, right, within your parents. But I think all we can do is shine light on the truth and pray and have intentions for healing and for them to figure out on their own journey. And like I said, I wish them no ill will. I wish that they can see the light and go to therapy and, and heal and repair. And one of my friends who I've helped and she's read my book and I've been just talking to her and like casually coaching her through her experience with her parents. And she says that without my words and my encouragement and my content I put on Instagram and the podcast and without my book, she would not have seen that she had inner child trauma as well. And she would not have seen that she needed to stand up and be her own parent and stand up against her narcissistic parent try and free her enabling parent but all she could do was draw the boundaries and say no more she you know it had to take all the way up to something really traumatic where she had to file a police report and a restraining order because it became violent and physical and i mean you would think oh my gosh it's insane why would a parent be violent towards their partner and their child but here we are bringing awareness during domestic violence abuse month in october so that this is real and the silence will continue per to perpetuate it and allow it so her speaking up and her filing a police report and her filing a restraining order and then there being a lawsuit against her because she filed a police report like how dare you file a police report against your own parent right and then it like has become this legal battle but she's so brave and she's so hopeful and she's so confident through it. And then the other day she shared with me that there was 
a healing moment. And there was an apology from her parents. And there was a step forward to healing. They have now gotten three therapists. So one for each parent individually, and then they're doing couples therapy. Like how amazingly healing and powerful was it for her to stand up and be her own parent and say enough is enough. And then her parents going, whoa, we're really on the bottom, rock bottom. We need to really fix ourselves and, you know, do the work because we've harmed our daughter. So these things, they come up only when we can rise up and be strong for ourselves. And this is a beautiful story that there's much more healing to do, but I see this as a success story. And again, she's just like so thankful. And thank you so much for your book and your content. You're amazing. And like, without you, I would have not been able to do this. And I appreciate it. And I thank her for that. And at the same time, I continue to tell her, it was all within you. You know, you just need a little like handholding and coaxing, but the power really was in you, not me. <laughs> I'm just the, the messenger, the conduit and the power for you to be able to rise up is within you. So have courage, have hope and faith and draw your boundaries, rise up, reparent yourself and be the hero in your story, in your own life for yourself. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast today. Today is the first of the month as I record this, and this is the month of October, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And this is really near and dear to my heart, and it's important that we have discussions on the podcast, on all our social medias, and in our personal lives about what does that mean? And I know for me, it does not only mean physical violence. So today I share on the podcast a beautiful rerun episode that was posted a long time ago. So all of you new listeners have not heard this beautiful episode with Dawn Renee. And she shares about her journey with domestic abuse and violence. And of course, it started very narcissistic and controlling and verbal and ended up being horrifically physical. And the title is Love Should Not Hurt. And I think that's the theme of this month and sharing that love should not hurt. Love's is unconditional. Love is like a warm sweater and it is not transactional. It is not controlling. It is not guilt ridden. It is not shame. It is not manipulative. It just loves you for who you are and doesn't try and change you. So enjoy this episode today and this rerun with the beautiful Dawn Renee. I am joined with Dawn Renee from Beautifully Broken Podcast. I'm so excited for her to share her story and her extremely in-depth wisdom, really. She's been through so much with you and how to see the red flags, maybe glean some information about how to spot a narcissist if you're in an emotional and physical abusive relationship. So Don, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to death to be here, Raven. <laughs> I'm really excited to, sh to share all the nuggets. First, I want to share about your podcast because I think it's beautiful and your lives that you do. What is it called? It's Friday Feels. It's, it's Mindful Mondays, mm -hmm. Wednesday Wellness Tips, and then Friday Feels. And Good. so I do those on my uh, personal Facebook page on, at Dawn Hanlon. And then I do the podcast is Beautifully Broken with Dawn Renee, and that's available wherever you get your podcast. 
And that is where I talk about life-altering events, how things change you. I did a series called The Faces of Widowhood because I am a widow. Mm -hmm. I'm currently doing a series called The Faces of Joy and Pain. And basically I talk to people, I have conversations with them about how they're finding little bits of joy, even in a season of pain, Mm -hmm. whatever their trial is that they're in the midst of, they're finding ways to find a way to be happy every day, to feel like themselves, to be connected and not forget who they are and let whatever it is that's going on in their life become their identity. Because that happens when you're going through a rough patch in life. It can be loss of a job. It could be loss of housing with the COVID uh, pandemic and the whole world. I don't know, dynamics changing. So many people are experiencing so many different things that they never expected would happen. They've found themselves in positions, in situations that they never dreamt of and they're grieving and they're struggling. And I just want people to know that that doesn't have to define you. You don't have to be stuck in that place. There are ways that you can find something good, even if it's just for a few minutes a day, but something to help keep the light inside of you alive. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. And all of your lives are so inspiring. I know every time I watch it, you had said someone mentioned like, you just don't feel alone when they're watching your lives. And I get that same vibe. It's like, you have such a beautiful way of expressing what message is coming across and it's just so uplifting. So you are definitely a shining light in the darkness right now. So thank you. I do appreciate that. Thank you. And that's what I say, beautifully broken. We're all beautifully Mm -hmm. broken, but just because we're broken doesn't mean that we're trash or disposable. We're broken and that creates our own uniqueness. And maybe those cracks are supposed to let our inner light shine out so we can be a beacon to others and help guide them through their dark time together. Yeah, that's beautiful. And we're going to get into your story because you definitely have had many cracks hit and blown onto your beautiful porcelain tea teapot. And this, you know, my goal in this show and for all of you is to glean uh, wisdom and information about narcissism and almost like real-time stories as we're having girl talk that hopefully spark a thought or an aha moment in your mind that, oh my gosh, I've heard that phrase before. And then evaluate it. You know, there's, there's, we need to have this critical thinking when we're in relationships. Is this person have my best interest? Or are they constantly, you know, putting everything off on me and, you know, I'm taking the blame for it. And they're saying all these little things. So she's going to give us all these phrases about the narcissist abuse. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, empaths, wanted to take a break and ask if these phrases sound familiar to you. I didn't say that. You're too sensitive. No one will ever believe you. If these phrases are familiar, then you may be dealing with a narcissist. Then my book, Empath and the Narcissist, is for you. How to overcome narcissistic abuse and recover from PTSD, codependency, gaslighting, and manipulation. Receive another bonus in this book, the free Four Ways to Set Powerful Boundaries workshop is included in this book. If you wish to feel alive again and take back the power in your life, then go to 
www.ravenscott.show forward slash empath and the narcissist. Now back to the show. She has experienced it firsthand since she was 14 and younger. 12. I was 12. 12. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 12. So she experienced it. She met him when she was 12 at church. She's going to tell the story, but the, the main point that I want you to focus in on is as she's telling her story, see how every time the phrase was told to her, the narcissist was pawning any responsibility of his actions off onto her, the kind, loving, empathic person who would say, okay, well, maybe it is me. And that's something that we need to really make sure we have a guard up against is taking responsibility for other people's actions. So Don, share with us, you met him at 12 in church, you said? Yeah, so we we grew up in the same neighborhood. Our parents were friends. We went to the same church. He He was four years older. He was the same age as my older brother. So, you know, I knew him, you know, it's a small neighborhood. Everybody knew everyone. So we started dating, I guess I was 12 and he was 16 and we, you know, it was okay because our parents knew each other. It was, you know, they weren't thrilled with the age difference, but he was from a good family. I'm from a good family. Our dads were deacons in the church together. It was okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when I don't know when the abuse started. And I, I, I was telling you, Raven, I don't remember when the first time he hit me was because by the time that came along, the verbal and emotional abuse had been going on for so very long. And it started with things like, you made me so angry if you had just done X, if you had only said this, if you had only worn something different, it was always put on me. And there was always something that I had done or some slight perceived slights or something against him. I remember I was 13. And so we'd been together about a year and I wanted to get my hair cut short because I had really, really long hair and I wanted to get it short and I wanted to get a perm. And I did. And he hated it. And he said, you didn't ask me about this. I didn't say you could do this. Oh, so now he has control of your body as well? Yes. And, and I was, and he was like, I don't, this makes you look like a boy. And now I was very athletic. I played soccer. I played Mm -hmm. football. I had reconstructive knee surgery when I was 12 because I played football. I climbed trees. I, I, you know, I played soccer on the boys soccer team. So I was, Mm -hmm. you know, always very athletic and short hair just made more sense. Right. And, but very practical because, well, look, you know, for me, I, you know, look, I don't have to braid it and I don't have to, but for him, it was, you know, he got got older. He would buy my clothes for me. I would, did not wear makeup because he did not approve of makeup because he would say, why are you wearing makeup? Who are you trying to impress? And if I said, Mm, oh, I want to look nice for you. He said, I didn't say I needed you to look nice. You're keep around. You're lucky I have you. You're lucky I don't leave you. Lucky that I love you because nobody else will. And And they do that. that They they really cut their self-esteem low. They cut it low Mm -hmm. in order to to put themselves up and to control you. 
And it's not even about yeah. control. Also, I think it's about like, well, if you're with me, you have to look how I approve because you're like their identity and their persona out in the world is attached to whomever they're with. And that's, I think a big thing too, right? It, it, yes. And, and as part of that, because we grew up in this very close knit community where like everyone knows everyone and mm-hmm. my best friend and these group of you know guys and girls that I hung out with. I mean, I played football with the guys and slowly bit by bit. It was, I was like, Oh, I'm going to be spending the night at so-and-so's house this weekend. And we're going to be, you know, going to play soccer on Saturday. And he'd say, I, I was planning for us to go to a movie on mm-hmm. Friday night and or Saturday. So I would cancel the plans because we were going to do something together. And slowly but surely, I was weaned away from my friends. Mm-hmm. And I was weaned away from my activities and the things that I enjoyed and became submersed in the things that he did and he enjoyed and his friends and their things. So I lost my identity, but it happened so slowly and so innocuously. It, I didn't even realize it was happening. Um, you know, and I, I don't even, like I said, I don't know when it started the, the first time he hit me and people say, how can you not remember that? And it's because by the time that happened, he had told me so many times that, you know, you deserve this. This is your fault. Mm-hmm. Look what you made me do. And that became, well, I deserved it. Well, if I'd, I should have said something different, I should have not said anything. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have told that joke or I shouldn't have had that radio station playing that loudly when he came home from work. And we ended up, we, we separated for a while off and on. We would do that, but I would, he would always write me a letter or a card and, and it was beautiful poetry and it was just amazing. And he was so thoughtful and kind and he would promise to never do it again. And I have Hmm. from the time I was 12 to I was 27, we were together and I have a shoebox full of all the cards and letters. Oh, wow. You kept them. I kept them. And when I moved out of my house, so about two years ago, mm-hmm. and I was going through my closet of things, one of my children said to me, mom, why do you have these? And I said, because at one point he had me convinced that this never happened. It was all in my head and I made it all up. Right. And this is my proof that this really happened mm-hmm. because he admits to everything in these letters. He admits to everything that he denies to the world. But to me, he admitted it. And this is my validation that I am not crazy and that I didn't deserve any of this. And this is to remind me that it wasn't me. And I do still have those cards and letters. Some of them have been shredded and I kind (laughs) of tape them back together. You know, some I did burn before I realized, no, I think I better hold on to these. Yeah, um, it, it almost I, grounds you to your sanity because you're, you are so right about the smoke and mirrors as they convince yeah. you that first that you deserve it. Sometimes they'll convince you that that never happened at all. What are you talking about? I never hit you. You know, yeah, you it, ran into exactly, the wall or yeah. something, right? Yeah. So yes. And we had our first child when I was 14. So I was 14 and he was 18. Yeah. And, oh, so he, yeah, he was four years older. I kept thinking when you were telling me that he was your same age, but technically that's illegal, right? 
Right. But, you know, by that time, our parents had already, you know, sanctioned the relationship. So it wasn't like they could go back. Yeah. He put on his charge. So everyone was fine. They couldn't really take it back. And in our state, 14 is legal age of of consent. It's books from like 1700. Nobody's bothered to change it. So, yeah. Who knew? Yeah, I knew because I looked it up. <laughs> I was the one who was <laughs> looked it up. But yeah, so you know, so we had the baby and he was really good and everything was great and wonderful and terrific. And then I, you know, I had her 10 days before I started ninth grade. And I went to high school and then 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. I went to high school half a day and nursing school half a day and took college classes. So I graduated from high school the day before I the day after I graduated from nursing school. Wow. And that way I, I would be able to have a job for me and my child to be able to take care of my kid. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, you need to do that. And somewhere uh, the summer between my 11th and 12th grade year, I, I finally realized that this is not me. It was two. It was actually it was two suicide attempts I had had from the time I was 14 till I was 17. Mm-hmm. And at the time that I finally had had enough, I weighed 98 pounds. I almost died from malnutrition because I was anorexic and he was and still all of telling this was from what he, and was he would still you, right? tell me, he would still tell me, he's like, you know, you're fat, you're ugly. Who wants you? You're smart. You're too smart. Nobody wants a girl that's that smart. Oh my gosh. So when I, when we were talking, because I was doing my SATs, you know, summer between 11th and 12th grade SATs and you're picking colleges. And he said, you don't need to go to college. You're smart enough. What do you think you're going to do with that? Anyone? Anyway, why would anybody want to hire you? You already have a kid who cares about what you know. It's just so undercutting to your potential and your human beingness. Like you're incredibly smart. Like I'm so impressed. (laughs) It is, he would tell me these things, but he would say them and, and they weren't in an insidious way. They were, they were, they were as if he were giving me advice and what know because he was older and wiser Mm -hmm. and that, you know, I should listen to him. And it felt like he was doing it out of love. Right. Because he's the older one that he knows best, almost like a weird, creepy fatherly figure. Like yes. telling you what's best. Yes. And, but, and, but he would do it with like, you know, I, I need you to understand that, you know, nobody likes a girl that's smart. Mm-hmm. You're not that pretty. So you're lucky I'm here and I love you and I keep you around right. as if that was supposed to, you know, you know, Hey, you're lucky. I have, you're here, but it was said in like this kind and loving way. And, but it was always the, if you hadn't done this, or if only you had done this, if you would only do what I asked, if you would just take care of the kids the way I want you to, if you would just clean the house when I tell you to, and he would leave little notes. Have you cleaned the bathroom lately? Clean it again. Things like that. You know, like my to-do list. And I was working full-time nights as a nurse and I was taking care of one at least. Yeah. Well, I had one and then we had another one. Um, yeah. And then we ended up getting married eventually and having a third one. And we went, we moved from our apartment into a townhouse. And then we wanted to move into this. I wanted to move into the single family home. Yeah. And I can remember walking through the house and I just felt like home. 
I walked in there and I was like, this is where I, this, I can live here. This mm. is me. And he turned to me and he said, this is a really big house. Do you think you can keep it clean? Do you think you're going to be able to be a good wife here? Because as soon as we got married and he had tried, he had, he had stopped after the second baby was born, he had stopped for a while and he had done really well. And so I agreed to marry him because he had changed. He was better. Yeah. And like, as soon as we got married, Mm -hmm. it started, he says, well, you're the wife now. A wife does this. A wife should know this. You should know since now you're my wife, how to take care of me. It's your job care of the house and the kids. It's your job to make sure I have my work. And he would say things, but he would say them in such a gentle way as I feel like he was guiding me and teaching me how to be the perfect wife because right. I didn't know how. Yeah. Um, no, I get yeah, that but, tone very well. It's like, I know best. I'm just trying to help you be a better person. Right. And, and it became my identity was wrapped up in his. And yeah. when it, when I did try to tell people, no, he, you know, he hurts me. And Mm. I, and whenever that started, which again, I don't know, but eventually it, and it was never anything he would like throw the remote control and it would hit me in the head or he threw a vase with like this carved vase at me and it hit me in the back of the leg and it cut my leg open. And he was like, if you had moved, it wouldn't have hit you. Right. Constantly blaming, shoving it off and the insecurity of, oh crap, how am I going to pay for this big house is never going to be like a normal conversation. Like a healthy man would say, I'm not sure if we're ready for this yet. Let's save up some more. That would be the healthy reaction. The unhealthy narcissist reaction is you can't handle this house. So therefore we can't have it. I was actually making a lot more money than he was Mm -hmm. as a nurse. Probably part of also his insecurity. And that's when I had said after the third baby was born, I was like, really want to go back to school and get my degree. And he's like, you make plenty of money. You don't need to make any more money. (laughs) And um, make me look any more bad. Yeah, I think that was probably it. But at the time I was like, oh, you know, I do make plenty of money and I can pay the mortgage and I can pay the car payments and I can pay for the preschool and, you know, his money can buy groceries and pay for the healthcare. And that's fine Mm -hmm. because we are a couple and a partnership and our money is your money is my money. You know, that wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it was. It got to be more and more degrading and more, uh, just constantly, no matter what I did, there was always something putting me down. And when I would talk to my girlfriends, because again, this is the only real relationship I'd been in. Mm -hmm. And I would say, oh, this or that. And they'd say, oh, he doesn't say it. He didn't mean it that way because he's so sweet. He's so nice. He put a roof on the neighbor's house. But what they didn't know was that after he went up in 85 degree weather and helped put this roof on the house for the neighbor, who's wife was my friend. He came home and he said, this is all your fault. I have blisters on my hands and knees from putting a roof on their house because you're her friend. I had to help her husband. And now look at me, this is all your fault. And then that's when the ugly would start. And he'd pick me up and shove me into a wall or push me down the stairs or something to that effect. 
And nobody would believe me because he was such a nice guy and he was so helpful and he did so many things for people, but I would always pay for it later. Every time, every time he would come home and I would pay for it because it was my fault that he had gotten into that. It was my fault that he didn't get to go crabbing. He had to go stay on a roof because I was their friend and he had to play nice neighbor because I was friends with the neighbors and like, it was a bad thing to meet yeah. the neighbor. I mean, do you, do you hear how emotionally childish they are? Like an adult would say, um, not even offer first of all, if you don't want to do it, or if someone asks say, you know, no, I'm really not an expert. I don't want to ruin your roof. Like make something up, but say no, rather than pretend to be this really great person. First of all, to mask all the guilt of how you're treating your you know, wife and family, masking your insecurities, like all these masks they have, and then they get resentful and take it out on the people in the privacy of their own homes. It's just right. So uh, toxic. And like, you, he, he punched a brick wall and broke his hand and oh immediately gosh. turned to me and said, this is all your fault. Look what you made me do. If you would not make me angry, mm-hmm. things like this wouldn't happen. And that is, I, I remember that very distinctly. Mm-hmm. And I think it wasn't long after that, that he started hitting me instead of walls, but I don't really remember. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember feeling so guilty because I made him angry and then he heard it, then he got right. hurt and it was all my fault. Right. And that, that was a mindset that I had. That was the self image that I had that it, I just, I had to try harder. I had to do better and mm-hmm. make him happy all the time. So the kids had to be homework done and toys put away and bathed and ready to go. And his, when the garage door went up and his car came in the driveway, you know, in the garage after work, yeah. the dinner table was set. Dinner was ready. He would come in, wash his hands, sit at the table. The kids were there. Food would go on the table and everything was good. Mm-hmm. And I began to realize just how wrong it was when one day the kids were doing homework and we were playing with Play-Doh. Uh, my son was about three. We were playing with Play-Doh and we had the radio on and we had been dancing around in the kitchen. We had the broom and the dustpan and he's singing in it like it's a, a microphone. <laughs> and my, you know, I'm dancing with the broom and my daughters are doing their homework. And we had stopped and we we're just playing and having fun while dinner was cooking. And the garage door went up and my three-year-old son went, <gasps> daddy's home. We have to clean up before he walks in. And everybody stopped. My three-year-old turned off the radio. My daughters gathered their homework and ran to their room. Mm -hmm. And my son who went and made sure all the dishes and everything were in their right place on the table and then got in his chair and was sitting there waiting for dad to come in and everything was quiet and everything was perfect. There was no dirt, no noise, no mess. And I looked at that and that's when I realized that my kids were learning something horrible. Yeah. And they, they were learning that it wasn't okay to be themselves. They were learning that they couldn't be children. And I was hiding all of the, what was going on with me. My kids didn't know, but that's when I realized that even though they weren't seeing the abuse against me, they were still seeing how limited 
their that that this was how how they were learning that it wasn't okay to be yourself. It wasn't okay to play music and dance in the kitchen and laugh and tell jokes. That's what they were learning, and that yeah. is when I realized that's not how I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. And when I confronted him about it, we had a big argument, and he told me to leave, and I refused to leave. And he took a handgun out of the closet and held us on my head and started pulling the trigger. Oh my God. And that's when I left. And I was 27 and this had been going on since I was 12. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just insidious. So intense. And when I look back, I can see all the signs and I, I'm an intelligent, learned person. Right. But this is what I would tell myself when my friends would say, oh my God, my husband got drunk and he beat me up and and I've left him. And I would say, oh, I'm so proud of you. Good for you. Hmm. And I would say, oh, but that's not like my husband. He doesn't get drunk and beat me up. He Hmm. doesn't, you know, he's not a drunk. But then looking back, I realized that was worse because he didn't have something altering his mind to have him be that way. It was worse because that was how he was toward me naturally and that's when i realized that this was bad that this could go very bad and when he held the gun to my head and pulled the trigger i didn't know if it was loaded or not he said i can put a bullet in your brain and hide the body and no one will even care or notice that you're gone Mm -hmm. and that was my biggest fear that that he was right and then your children would have no one to protect them and there would be nobody there for my parents, for my kids, yeah. that nobody would protect them because nobody believed that he would do something horrible. Right. My but God. it starts with the loving tone and giving the advice and just trying right. to help you be a better person and help right. you to be what they want you to be, but you are in love with them. So you want to please them and you want to do what they want you to do but when it comes to not being around your friends or you find yourself changing who you are giving up all your dreams for Mm -hmm. theirs giving up all your friends for theirs when you realize one day that you're not listening to the music you like you're not telling the jokes you want to tell you're not wearing the clothes that you want to buy and wear that you know you want pink hair but you can't because he would not approve you want to punk rock out okay it's the 80s you want to punk (laughs) rock out because you are quirky and you are strange and you love all things science and all things weird i mean i wanted to be a micro i wanted to be a microbiologist and study mitochondrial DNA because I was convinced at the age of 10 that that was the key to viruses like AIDS and to cancer cells and MS and autoimmune illnesses. And guess what? Here we are. You were right. 40 40 years later. And what I thought 40 years ago, well, (sighs) yeah, 40 years ago, what I thought I had a, I had an idea for is real. Yeah. So and, now you know, what would you tell yourself, uh, your 12 year old self? Cause it started at 12. What would, what advice would you give your 12 year old self? If I could tell my 12 year old self, just one thing, mm-hmm. it would be be true to you. 
-hmm. because if you don't take care of you and let your light shine, then you've already lost. You've lost yourself and you are too precious to lose. I love that. And you know, on my podcast, I always say that keep your unique light shining because there's another podcast I listen to about cults. And she always says, guard your hearts, guard your minds, because no one else deserves to have control over it. They try and they do, and they succeed as in your story for a time, but then there's always a time where you wake up and you say, you know what? I'm done hiding my light. I'm done pleasing you because it's not benefiting anybody. Well, and the other thing is that if it doesn't feel right, it isn't. Uh If something seems off, if it doesn't feel good, if they're saying, I love you as they squeeze you and whisper in your ear, you're mine. Uh That doesn't feel good. Then it's not good. I don't care what the words are. I don't care how soft and gently they're whispered in your ear. It's not feeling good, then it's not good for you. And that's the thing, the hardest one to follow because you desperately want the words to mean what they sound like they mean Mm -hmm. the way they're delivered, but it's the way they make you feel. If they make you feel scared, if they make you feel like you're going to cringe and I would do that, I would Mm -hmm. tense up because I was waiting for the punch to come. Mm -hmm. The, the words were kind and loving, but I was waiting because I knew what was coming next. Mm-hmm. If that's what you live, that's wrong. That's not right. You need to get out. You need Make to tell somebody. To get out safely. Yeah. yeah. You need to tell someone that can help you. I would say a professional because um, all the friends and family will be convinced that, like you said, like everyone thought he was a great guy. So yeah. And you get frustrated but, and you hit a wall, find a professional to help you. Yes. Go to a school counselor, go to, you know, go to the police department and go to a fire department. I don't care where you go, go where there are people, but go where there are people who are obligated to, to report it. They're obligated reporters. As a nurse, I am obligated to report anything I see or suspect or has told me. So you want to go to people who are obligated by the law to to report it and to follow up with the appropriate people. They can get you to lady women's shelters. There are shelters um, for women and children. There are emergency shelters that nobody knows where they are. Nobody. Yes, nobody. I love that and show made on Netflix. You haven't seen it. You need to watch it. I have it. it. It's, in, it's in my oh. list because it's one of those things that, yeah, it's a trigger. It's a there, trigger. Are, there are shows and I start to watch them. I think I can do this. Yeah. And then I can't. Right. And, it's and just here too I am. Real. It's too real. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fi- I'm 56. And sometimes they'll say or do something in a movie or a TV program. Mm-hmm. And I am 12. I am 14. And yeah. I am terrified. And yes. it it doesn't last long, but it's enough to throw me off and really question so many decisions that I made. And, you know, if I could have done it differently and my way of reconciling that is by talking about it, my way of doing it better is by trying to make sure other people don't live it. Mm-hmm. That made me cry. Me too. Yeah. The, 
someone had said to me that me talking about the things that have happened in my life was sounded like I was like making a fool of myself. And that's just the shadow. I'm not making a fool of myself. And if I am, that's okay. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. What I am doing is I'm trying to shine light, bring to light things that people know have been going on for years, but they don't really talk about. Mm-hmm. And I want people to know they're not alone. I want girls. I mean, women, girls from the age of 10 and 12 are experiencing these relationships yeah. and are cu- trying to commit suicide and, and, and they're successful and, and they're, you know, 10, 12, 14 year olds who have been abused mm-hmm. and, and they're trying to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And I don't want anyone to do that. I don't want anyone if I can save, if I can get one person to just stop and reevaluate and make a change, then me telling my story. It's not a fool. That is the person who ever said everything. that the ego, the fear and the shadow trying to stop you. And, and I don't tell the stories for me, you know, it doesn't, yeah. you know, I'm ashamed of them. Actually. I, right. I am ashamed that I didn't do better, that I didn't see sooner that I let it happen for so long that I expose my children to this. Mm-hmm. I'm ashamed that I didn't make better choices for me and my kids for so long. Mm-hmm. But if I hide it, that shame, if I hide behind it, that doesn't help anyone. And that's, right. I feel like I'm my purpose in life is to make sure that the lessons I've learned aren't repeated by others. If I can, in some small way, give courage to someone, then everything I've gone through is worth it. Mm-hmm. I'm on the same page with you. And I'm, I think you're so brave in sharing it. I appreciate you sharing that. And thank you so much for being here. I want to reiterate one thing that you had said about feeling in your body, because I know it's very hard and it, it sounds okay, what does that mean? Like feel in my body, how does it feel? And so many times, I think that's where the battle is with the narcissist and the empath or the nice person or whatever you want to call it is in the mind. But if you can remove yourself from justifying in the mind, right? Listening to their lies, buying into what they're saying to you in your thoughts and go into your gut, like you said, in your body, how does it feel in your heart? You know, like you said, I love you. Well, if your body goes, oh, when they say I love you, okay, that's, you need to listen to that and stop justifying it in their head. Yeah. When I love you hurts. Right. I love you you should not hurt. Yeah. When, when they whisper, I love you and give you a hug and you're in pain and fear, that is a gut reaction. That is a visceral reaction that you need to pay attention to. And I think we do justify it away and rationalize it away. And we're made to feel like what we're feeling isn't real, but here's the thing, whatever you feel, no one can tell you is wrong because it's your feelings and your feelings are always right and true for you. So follow them. Mm going to close on that because I want you to get more from her on her Facebook lives, Don Hanlon on Facebook. And I want you to go and listen to her podcast. She is such a wealth of wisdom. 
just she's such a brave and bright soul. I really appreciate you being here on the show. And her podcast is called Beautifully Broken by Don Renee. So go find that and subscribe. Um, please reach out to us. We're here to help you comment below any of your thoughts, questions. We're here to answer them and be here with you. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you. And I'm so glad that you had me on. I'm so glad you were here. It's beautiful. If this resonated with you, please take a screenshot and share directly to a friend who you know is in need. If you or anyone that you know is in danger in domestic violence, please call the 1-800-HOTLINE. National Domestic Violence Hotline is 800-799-7233. Thank you for tuning in today. You are a blessing. If this has impacted you, please share it with a friend, spread the word so we can impact and end domestic violence, narcissist abuse, end the suffering now. If you are enjoying this podcast, subscribe and leave a rate and review. Don't forget to DM me free gift to get your free how to draw powerful boundaries workshop. I'm here to support you and I'm here for one-on-one coaching. If you are enjoying this podcast, help me help others rate and review. And remember, always keep your unique light shining. Madvi is helping people release emotional baggage, breaking negative patterns, and finding the root causes with the emotion and body code. Visit www.madvi.ca. That's M-A-D-H-V-I dot C-A. I can personally attest that this is an amazing way to heal trauma out that you can't do with meditation and thought therapy and talk therapy and all the things. So. Reach out to her and get a free 30-minute consultation to see if this is something that can help you.